This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region that's covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm feeling pretty good, Matt, after a momentous week. Indeed, it has been a momentous week with the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Indeed. So this week, I'll be speaking with RFA Vietnamese service journalist Viet Ha about the Vietnamese Communist Party Congress that kicks off on January 25th. It happens just once every five years. So although it may be dry and short on instant drama, it's a big deal. Vietnam's new leaders will be announced, or not so new, given the signs that some of the top figures in the Politburo could cling on despite passing retirement age. But first, let's turn to the situation of the Uyghur minority in China's far west. And we begin this segment with a soundbite. It comes from the confirmation hearing of U.S. Secretary of State nominee Antony Blinken, a day before the inauguration of Biden on January the 20th. Speaking is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, and he's questioning the respondent, who is Antony Blinken. Uh, Secretary Pompeo designated the Chinese Communist Party as having engaged in genocide regarding the Uyghur mu- Muslim population. Do you agree with that? Does that would be my judgment as well. You do agree? Yes. Yeah. So, Paul, the man likely to become the next top U.S. diplomat was endorsing a last gasp determination from the Trump administration that China has committed genocide against the Uyghurs. That was a big deal. Yes, Matt, the G word is not applied lightly and it requires follow-up to be meaningful. As horrific as that situation is though, it's ironically seen as good news by the Uyghurs because it puts the issue more firmly on the international map. Today, I'll be talking to Alim Setov, director of RFA's Uyghur service, who has spearheaded RFA's coverage of the internment camps and other abuses and affronts to the 12 million Uyghurs. I'm going to try to understand what it means to Uyghurs and what comes next in terms of policies and reactions to this designation. Okay, that sounds like it'd be very interesting. Please take it away. Thank you for making time for us, Alim. Thank you, Paul. It's my pleasure. Alim, what is the significance of this designation for the Uyghur people inside and outside of the XUAR? The significance is huge because for the past nearly four years, the Uyghur people have been telling the world what's happening to them. And they basically told the world China is trying to eliminate the Uyghurs as a people. And uh, what China is doing is basically genocide. And uh, the international community is, of course, especially U.S., paid special attention to this issue and raised it many times at the highest levels and even directly with the Chinese government. But the Chinese government obviously denied any wrongdoing, just saying it's doing the right thing and helping Uyghurs, giving them jobs, training them in the schools. But with the designation by Secretary Pompeo on his last day, what China has been doing uh, against the Uyghurs is both genocide and crimes against humanity uh, gives the Uyghur people uh, a kind of relief. Uh, meaning that the uh, truth has overcome, the truth of the Uyghurs has overcome the lies of the Chinese government. And now the world has understood what's happening to the Uyghur people. So now they have hope for a better future. Uh, they believe now China is accused of genocide and crimes against humanity. And uh, 
After that, China will be held responsible for what it is doing toward the Uyghur people. It's kind of a sad statement that uh, designation like that of a very terrible thing is in some way good news for the Uyghur people and their plight. Based on your team's reporting on the region, and again, the RFA Uyghur service played a major role in the last several years in digging out stories that publicized the plight of the Uyghurs and became part of the conversation about the Uyghur camps. But based on your reporting, what arguments do you think won the case of using the genocide label? It's probably not just one thing, but when you look at across of what's happened in the last several years, the camps, the Adrian Zen's reports on the forced sterilization, the forced labor, what do you think tipped the State Department's hand towards saying genocide as opposed to crimes against humanity? Yes, obviously the Chinese government has pursued a policy of genocide against the Uyghur people. In this age of information, a lot of things the Chinese government, you know, posted you know, on their website about the policies and the way they were going to deal with the Uyghur population were already online. And uh, by the time the Chinese government realized a lot of things that showed the intent of the Chinese government to destroy the Uyghur people in whole and in part, especially Uyghur language, culture, history, traditions, and the mass detentions, it was already too late. And uh, of course, Uyghur service did our best to report on the mass detentions uh, of the Uyghurs, uh, the forced separation of Uyghur women and from their children, and the forcible marriage of Uyghur women to Han Chinese men, and the building of crematoriums near the camps, uh, and many more, obviously. And uh, international scholars such as Adrian Zanz and others also using publicly available information from the Chinese government and uh, basically pinpoint to the fact that China is committing forced abortion sterilizations against the Uyghur women, separating Uyghur children from Uyghur parents, sending them to Chinese indoctrination kindergartens. And all of this uh, fall right into the elements of the Genocide Convention, basically showcasing China indeed has the intent to commit genocide. Now, in practical terms, and I should note that incoming Secretary of State Tony Blinken has said he's endorsing that designation so we can expect continuity uh, with the Biden administration. In practical terms, what kind of policies do you expect to come out of this? More sanctions or more scrutiny on the uh, exports from Xinjiang? What comes next? And now it's time to hold China to account for its crimes towards the Uyghur population. And uh, it is a huge relief for the Uyghur people to hear that new Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, basically agrees with uh, Secretary Pompeo's designation of China committing both genocide and crimes against humanity. And the Uyghurs expect now that U.S. take bold action against China, hold those officials responsible, and also refer to uh, Chen Guo and Party Secretary of the Uyghur region and other top Chinese officials to the International Criminal Court and International Court of Justice So these people will be prosecuted under international law for crimes of uh, genocide. And also U.S. can do a lot. And we know the uh, 2022 uh, Beijing Olympics coming very soon. U.S. uh, can call uh, all of its allies to boycott Beijing Olympics and tell the Chinese government the U.S. and the free world will not accept or attend the Beijing Olympics until China stops the genocide and crimes against humanity of the Uyghur people. And also the U.S. and other 
countries can uh, discuss, bring up this issue urgently at the UN level. Uh, China is powerful still there, but China can be named and shamed there. So a number of things can be done by the U.S. and international community to pursue against Beijing for uh, committing genocide. You mentioned the international community, and so far it's this action by uh, the State Department this week is the only concrete action that states have taken. But you have, through the Weaker Service, you have followed some of the other developments. Do you, do you think now that the United States has made its strong statement, will there be countries following suit, allied countries, NATO countries, other countries? I do believe so, because United States is a leader of the world. U.S. always takes the lead. When U.S. takes the lead, U.S. allies and the international community follow suit. Uh, on this uh, particular case, it may not be very fast, very easy for many countries to follow U.S. suit, but at least uh, the genocide designation will deter a number of countries from endorsing China's government's policy of the Uyghurs. For example, we see at the UN General Assembly last year that 30-some countries support the Chinese government's policy of the Uyghurs. Many of them are actually Muslim countries. Now, with U.S. designation of China committing genocide and crimes against humanity, it will be very, very difficult for these countries to continue to support China because they're basically supporting China's genocide of Uyghurs. And they, nobody wants to be looked at supporting a genocidal regime. And in addition to that, I think other U.S. allies, they are also having huge problems with the Chinese government, whether that's Australia or Sweden or U.K., uh, in light of the Hong Kong crackdown and other issues, of course. This debate about genocide and crimes against humanity has gone on necessarily. But when it comes down to Uyghurs, ordinary Uyghurs or uh, exiled Uyghurs, it's not a mere academic discussion because of the sufferings in, that's been involved. Now, in your case, Alim, you've uh, worked in Uyghur activism and also reporting on Uyghur affairs for pretty much your whole adult life and possibly even earlier student life. So taking off the professional hats that you've worn, share with our readers and listeners what Chinese repression in the, your home region has cost you personally my father was imprisoned by the Chinese government. They call as an ethnic nationalist when I was only six months old. So my mother was left with four children, toddlers, to take care of until my father was released 10 years later. I was 11 when I first time saw my father, an older man, very weak, but very sweet. And uh, my oldest brother, you know, he was like five, six years old at the time. Chinese red guards abused him daily, beat him up. At the end, he did not grow up like a normal child. He also passed away in his 40s because of the things he suffered when he was young. And, but my mother, being a very strong-willed uh, woman, raised us with confidence, with faith, and hope, and a dignity. And uh, three of us made it, you know, went to colleges, studied well, did pretty well. But uh, because I knew like my father, you know, long before other Uyghurs realized that Chinese communist government's intent, intention toward the Uyghur people was never good. This day would come, this day of genocide or killing or massacre of Uyghurs. So uh, I left uh, my beautiful homeland in 1996. I came to the U.S. to study. 
Then I became an activist to expose Chinese government's crimes against the Uyghur people. Then my family was targeted. My father passed away uh, interim, and uh, my mother had heart issues. And uh, since 2017, I lost my sister and her entire family. I lost in touch with them. I do not know what has happened to them. I'm not sure they're alive or dead. And I simply do not have any kind of information. But I do pray daily for their safety, uh, for their good health. But uh, only God knows their whereabouts and how they are doing at this moment. I know for a fact that it's not unique among Uyghurs or, or even unique among RFA Uyghur staffers. Uh, Aleem, thank you for sharing both your wisdom and insight on how things are developing in the wake of the designation of the genocide case from the State Department, and as well as your personal insights and your and your personal loss. Thank you, Paul. I have to think that 2021 will be every bit as busy for the Uyghur service as every year since the camps were revealed in 2017. From the deserts and mountains of Xinjiang, we shift to the halls of power in Hanoi, where my colleague Matt Pennington will look into the upcoming Communist Party Congress. Over to you, Matt. Thanks a lot, Paul. Last week on Eyes in Asia, we talked about the Communist Party Congress in Laos. This week, we discuss Laos's fraternal big brother, as Paul mentioned, that's Vietnam, which commences its five-yearly ruling party congress on January 25th. In both instances, the political mechanics are murky. So, to help me read the tea leaves of what's brewing, I'm joined by Viet Ha of RFA Vietnamese Service. Welcome, Viet Ha. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure thing. So could you start off by setting the scene for us a little bit? I mean, where is the Congress held and what gets decided there? Okay, so the uh, party Congress will be held on January 25th uh, until uh, February 2nd in Hanoi, as usual, always in the capital. What key decisions do they have to make at this Congress? The party will, uh, they will table four key documents, including a political report of the party and um, social economic strategy stuff like that. But the most important thing is um, they will select the uh, leaders for the next five year term. Okay. So from what I've heard from your reporting is that two of the top leaders are likely to stay on, although they're beyond the age limit for Politburo membership. Can you fill us in on that? You know that the before the party Congress, the, the government issued a decision stipulating that information regarding the list of the uh, candidate for all the top leaders is the state secret. So all the information that we have, uh, we got it from some experts in Vietnam and outside Vietnam, they have their own sources. And, and also from some Facebooker who knows some information, you know, from inside the party. So two people who will stay on for this term is the General Secretary Nguyen Phu Chao, who is 77 years old this year and Prime Minister uh, Nguyen Xuân Phúc, who is 67. Both of them are over the age limit set out by the party because the uh, the criteria for the, the top position is no more than 65 years old. Okay. So why do you think that is? Why, why are they going to keep on Chao and Phúc? I will give you some uh, background about this. Even though the party's criteria is you have to miss the uh, 65 years old age limit, but the party also has the, uh, what they call special cases. An, ex an example is Chao. 
who has been serving two terms now. In 2016, at the Congress 12, his age was already over the age limit, but he was considered as a special case. If this time Chuck is confirmed to stay for another term, he will serve the third term in the same position, which is also not compliant with the party criteria, which said that nobody can hold the same position for more than two terms. An explanation I heard is that uh, they cannot find the next suitable general secretary who can replace Chuck, and they need more time to prepare for the next leader generation. Before the uh, plenum 15, which took place last week, there was still some rumor that uh, the standing member of the party central committee secretariat, Chen Quoc uh, would be a special case to replace Chuck. He is also 67 years old and he will be a, a special case. But I heard that he did not receive uh, enough approval from the Central Committee. Okay. Now, in recent months, we've seen uh, Chow and when he's in public, and he looks rather frail. So it's kind of surprising to an outsider that he's going to stay on. What, what's the backstory about his medical condition? Chow actually has not been very well since mid-2019 when he got a stroke on a trip to the uh, southern province of Kinzang. Even though the state media was mum about this for a long time, but news about his health broke out on the Facebook, I, I believe in April 2019, that was exactly when he was sick. He was not been seen in public for about a month, and when people could see him again on TV, they could see that his work was very slow and he needed somebody next to him to help him constantly. Also in 2019, there was some reports that he would visit the United States in October, but then that trip didn't happen. Many experts that we talked to back then said that it was uh, obviously his health was a main factor. So the thought is that he will stay on as general secretary of the party? He will stay on as the uh, general secretary of the party. And then, you know, Prime Minister Winston Fook will serve as the, um, the state president. OK, which is a position currently held by Chow. Is that right? Yes. Actually, Chow right now holding two positions, general secretary and president. Yes. So would this be something of a demotion for Fook? I mean, is he going to lose some executive power? Well, in Vietnam, president is, is the role that is more like a ceremonial role. So he will appear at some state parties, make some visit to foreign countries. So even though he is not a prime minister, I mean the executive branch of the government, he is still a member of the Politburo, uh, which is the supreme body of the party. So he would still wield influence um, in, in the Politburo? Yes. Now, I know that people sometimes refer to the four pillars of the Vietnamese leadership. You've spoken to me about Chao and about Phuc. Who are the other two? Okay, so the four pillars are four top leaders of the party, including the uh, general secretary, state president, prime minister, and the chairperson of the National Assembly. According to the list of the candidates approved by the uh, party's plenum 15 that some experts and the Facebook revealed, uh, beside the two special cases that we just talked about, the other two are Phạm Minh Ching, who is now the head of the uh, organization committee of the party. He will be the next prime minister. Uh, Vương Đình Huệ, who is now Hanoi's party chief, he will be the next chairman of the National Assembly. 
both of them meet all the party's criteria for the top leaders. Okay. Do you think we can conclude anything? I mean, if these leadership changes turn out as predicted, do you think this, that this shows that there's going to be any policy changes from the Vietnamese ruling party? Okay, so the change of the leaders in Vietnam happens when there's a change of uh, administration in the U.S. You know that any change in major policies in Vietnam depends on the change in the war, especially in superpowers like the U.S. and China. We we don't expect major changes after reading the uh, key document drafts because before the Congress, the party already had four key documents uh, that they... Um, reveal to the public to get some feedbacks. Uh, the most important key document is the political report of the party. And so according to the draft that we read, uh, the party still uh, stretched their goal, like their principle as the um, uh, socialism and Leninism. So there's no change in that. In their social economic strategy, uh, they set a target for Vietnam to become a developed country by 2050. So talking about change now, I I don't think that the Vietnam will, will have any big change like Doi Mới reform back in 1986. Having said that, the new leaders of Vietnam still face some certain challenges that may affect their policies in the next five and ten years. Even though Vietnam has been doing very well in containing the uh, coronavirus and keep their GDP's growth at 2.9%, uh, millions of Vietnamese people lost their jobs and incomes due to the pandemic. And on top of that, before the end of the uh, Trump's administration, the U.S. government labeled Vietnam as the uh, a currency manipulator. The USTR last week issued their investigation report saying that Vietnam's agent policy and practices, uh, including excessive uh, foreign exchange market interventions and other related actions, are unreasonable and burden or restrict U.S. commerce. Even though the USTR did not make any decision on punishing Vietnam based on their investigation findings and, and they just left it to the new administration of President Biden, I think Vietnam's leader has still need to, to be very cautious. Vietnam is also facing another challenge uh, on the South China Sea since mid-2019, when China sent their survey and Coast Guard boats to Vietnam's exclusive economic zone and harassing Vietnam's gas and oil exploration activities. And there are some concern in Vietnam now that there's about the possibility that China may use forces to take the Vanguard Bank from Vietnam like what they did with the Scarborough show of the Philippines back in 2012. So the Vietnamese Communist Party faces economic and strategic challenges in the next five years. And I guess all this is going to be debated at the Congress. Does much of this discussion come out into the public realm? I mean, what do ordinary Vietnamese people think of this political pantomime at the Congress and how the party operates? They are very curious to know who will be the next general secretary, prime minister. I mean, who will be in the four pillars? When the government issues the decision that information about the list of the party's next leader candidate is a state secret, uh, many Facebookers and some people that we interviewed were not happy with the decision. 
they said that the party is supposed to be by the people and for the people and thus has to be transparent. But well, what can they do? But they, they still find a way to talk about it on the Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Congress 13 will uh, take place um, at the end of this month when the delegates will listen to key documents. As I remember when I was in Vietnam, ordinary people are normally not very interested in listening to such long documents, except for experts who need to have you know, analysis about the party's policy in the future. But I remember there was one time when even ordinary people were really interested in listening to such key documents, you know, more or less, was back in 1986, at the Congress mm-hmm. 6, when the party started the Doi Mui reform policy, that was it. That was like an epoch-changing uh, reform when the, the country was sort of opening up economically, right? Yeah, that, that was when Vietnam started, you know, their new policy uh, opening up uh, to the world. And so they started what they call Doi Mui reform policy. I remember I was in Vietnam and I remember everywhere I, I went, I heard people were talking, but of course they were not talking out loud, just like in small group about who will be the next general secretary, what will we do, our, our economy was so bad and we need to do that, we need to do this. So that was one time. But, you know, in a one ruling party system like Vietnam, uh, people fight it hard to criticize the party and the government, you know. We still can hear and read about some criticism about the party and how it operates online. Vietnam had increased their crackdown on dissident rights just before the party congress. According to the Amnesty International, there are currently about 170 prisoners of conscience in Vietnam. And this number in 2016, when the Congress 12 took place, was 84. Well, so basically the number of political prisoners has, has doubled since the last Congress. Yes, since the 2016, yes. Do you think there's any chance of public protests at the Congress venue in Hanoi? In Vietnam, we have we see a lot of people protest about uh, land grabbing, you know, injustice, and we saw a lot. But then whenever there's such a big event happen, the government, from the central government to the local government, always prepare so well to prevent that happen. And they they mobilize police everywhere in the city and then make sure that there's no such protest breaking out anywhere. Well, Viet Ha, thank you very much for explaining to us about the upcoming Vietnamese Communist Party Congress. We'll watch very carefully to see the outcomes. Thank you. So, Paul, another party congress. I expect your team will be writing up what happens in Vietnam next week. Oh, yes, we will, Matt. Uh, Although the proceedings may be hard to follow and ultimately on the dry side, Vietnam is an important nation of 95 million people and the direction of the nation is important to Radio Free Asia. And everyone can read those stories on the English language website that Paul edits at rfa.org. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Our past podcasts are at rfa.org or on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. Not VOA, but EOA. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia with Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.